So here we are, prayers of the New Testament, and I've shared before the motivation that we have for this series really has to do with a study that I did a number of years ago that challenged me, challenged me because as I compared my own uh, prayer life with the uh, prayers that we find in the New Testament, I came up wanting, I came up recognizing that my prayers would uh, be weak, uh, would be often uh, missing out on the priorities of Scripture, uh, would often be uh, without the depth that they needed to be and would concentrate on the things that uh, seem to be uh, not the main things that the apostles and Jesus want to, us to concentrate on. So that's what drove me to study it and then drove me to teach it. I have to admit that uh, I am a selfish preacher. I'm a selfish teacher. And what I mean by that is that I grow by teaching and I grow by preaching. And so uh, when I find myself in the midst of something, uh, when I teach it, that's what enables me to, uh, to grow in my walk with the Lord. And so uh, sorry about that, but that's a confession that I need to make. I'm a selfish preacher, I'm a selfish teacher, uh, because the things that I preach and teach are the things that God has been impressing upon me and has been changing me. Uh, in our study of the prayers of the New Testament, there are two primary prayers in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul. And so we began with Jesus, which I think is the right place to begin. We started with what was called the Lord's Prayer, what we typically think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and also uh, similarly in Luke chapter 11. And in the Lord's Prayer, we call it the so-called Lord's Prayer because it's really Jesus' instruction in praying. Uh, in the Luke passage, Jesus is responding to a request by the disciples, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And so he gives them uh, this sort of template or outline or framework for prayer in what we call the Lord's Prayer. The real Lord's Prayer, I believe, however, is in John 17, which is what we call his high priestly prayer in which he prays as he looks to the cross, prays first of all for himself, then he prays for his disciples who are present with him, and then he prays for all of those who would come to faith through the message of the disciples, which includes, of course, you and me. And then the other prayer that is recorded of Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> so those are the prayers of Jesus that we examine. Those are the ones that are recorded in Scripture. It's kind of interesting that Jesus prayed a lot. He seemed to be going off and praying many times, sometimes all night long but we seldom get actually a record of those prayers. These are the three places where we actually find uh, Jesus' prayers recorded. Then we turn to Paul, and Paul in some respects is a more appropriate model for our praying because after all, he's not Jesus, he's a believer in Jesus, like, just like you and me. And so we began in the Philippians chapter one passage in which we entitled that Completing the Work praying in a way that recognized that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And there's a great deal of richness in that prayer in and of itself. Then we move to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, uh, which we entitled, Walking in a Manner Worthy. Uh, that was the desire of Paul as he prayed for the Colossian believers. He roots that very richly in theology in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the latter portion of that prayer is a marvelous display of the glory of Jesus Christ and all the different dimensions of his nature and character and work uh, from his work in creation, from his work in providence to redemption and to his coming glory. All of those things are in the Colossians. 
Colossians' prayer. And then last time we were together, we examined knowing the hope of his calling from Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to pick that up again this evening by way of review because we're going to stay in Ephesians. Paul gets carried away evidently in the book of Ephesians in prayer because he has two prayers that are recorded there. The one in chapter 1 which we looked at last time and then also the one in chapter 3 which we'll look at this evening. But in chapter 1 this is what he says, for this reason... Because of I, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now you'll recall that when we examined that prayer, there were a couple of petitions in particular for which Paul prayed on behalf of the Ephesians. He asked that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, he wants them to know God better. That's the goal. And in order for them to do that, God must actually contribute to that by giving them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he also prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that there would be something that takes place within the very core of their being, uh, that, in fact, there are three dimensions of that for which Paul prays. He prays that they would know the hope to which he has called them. He prays that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, that they would know that the saints are the glorious riches of Christ's inheritance, you all included. And he also prays that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. And he compares that kind of power to the power that raised Jesus from the dead and then seated him at the right hand of God. And you'll recall also that as we looked at that prayer, there was a theological context because Paul began that prayer with this phrase, for this reason. And that, of course, refers to the sentence that came immediately before uh, verse 15. And we also recognize that that sentence is that really, really, really long sentence. It's chapter 1, verses 13 and four, thir, three to 14, I should say. And it was richly filled with a number of theological concepts, which drives Paul to prayer. Uh, they are chosen to be holy and blameless. They are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They are adopted into his family. They are redeemed from the slave market of sin. They have been given forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is all invested in them. And as a result, that leads to Paul's prayer because he says right at the conclusion of that sentence, for this reason, and then he launches into prayer. So that's, the, that's what we remember from that first chapter. And so in the, sec, in the third chapter, we have another prayer of Paul. It begins in verse 14, 
and goes through 21. So let's uh, read through that, and then we'll uh, give some, make some observations about it and then pray through it together this evening. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, just like the first prayer in chapter one had a theological concept or context, uh, so does this one. And uh, as I began reading in verse 14, you'll recognize that he starts with this phrase, for this reason. Uh-oh, here we go again. <laughs> He's referring back to something, isn't he? He's referring back to the earlier portion of chapter 3 in uh, Ephesians, beginning in verse 2. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Now, not to worry, this one is not a run-on sentence. This one is not something that will drive English teachers crazy. There are several sentences involved here, but they're all significant because they do lend the theological context for this second of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians. Verse 2 says, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, me, given to me to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory for this reason. That's when we launch into the prayer. Now, I wonder if you picked up the, the key word in that theological context, verses three through 12. Anybody have a guess about what that word might be? And you might wonder, what's a key word in a passage of scripture? Well, a key word is a word that's repeated, number one. And it's a word that is significant in the meaning of the passage, that if you got rid of that word, that passage would be essentially rendered un, un, under, not understandable. Do you have any idea what that word that might be the key word in that passage would be? 
How about mystery, somebody said. That's exactly right. Mystery is a word that, get, that shows up several times. In verse uh, 3, it says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, verse 4 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5 implies it, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Then in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And verse uh, 9, it says, and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden uh, for ages in God who created all things. It's remarkable how many times this shows up. And so that's a key element, the mystery of Christ. It was made known by revelation. It was not known to other generations. It's now revealed to the apostles and prophets. And so what is this mystery? And it's, an, it's not a mystery that's continued to be hidden. It's now been revealed. And he tells us exactly what it is. Through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs with Israel. Through the gospel, members of the same body are the Gentiles with Israel. Partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel, Gentiles and Jews together. That's basically echoes what God promised to Abraham originally, that he and his, uh, his descendants would be a blessing to many nations. So Jew and Gentile together in one body. We're seeing the significance play out on the world stage today, are we not? And that's why when I prayed this morning, I recognized, and I trust you all do as well, that the only answer to that conflict is a reconciliation that comes only through Jesus Christ, because only through Jesus will he ever take Palestinians and Jews and bring them together in relationship, in reconciliation as one body. That's why the church of Jesus Christ, over there as well as here, is so critically important in bringing those people together. It's only through submission to the will and obedience of Jesus Christ will we ever have genuine and lasting peace in the Middle East. Can we coexist? We see that from time to time. Not without Jesus Christ. No, it's the only way that will ever happen. And that's what this mystery is all about. We see it in Ephesians. In fact, uh, what, you know what comes be between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 where the prayers are? Ephesians 2, brilliant. And Ephesians 2, it lays out that whole issue of two bodies coming together into one, that Gentiles are partakers with the people of Israel in the commonwealth, that they are, they are part of that whole body of believers throughout all generations. And that's what the mystery that had been hidden in ages past is actually coming together. And that's why that ministry that we uh, hearkened to and mentioned this morning is so critically important over there as well as every place else in the world, that we can only have reconciliation when that takes place. Paul's role in all of that as part of the, uh, what he mentions in verses 3 through uh, 13 is that he is a minister of this gospel, and he's been called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles so that they would bring them together, to bring to light this mystery that has been hidden in ages past. And that passage indicates that God's intent uh, is that through the church, the wisdom of God would be made known. Would be made known. I, this is a stunning uh, declaration by Paul when you think about it. Through the church, the wisdom of God would be made known to whom? To rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to God's eternal purposes. Uh, do you catch the significance of that? 
that the church of Jesus Christ in proclaiming the gospel to Jews and Gentiles all over the world will actually teach the heavenly beings, the angels, something that they don't know. Revealing that to the people, to the, not the people, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How does that happen? It happens in Christ. It happens through faith. It happens when we boldly proclaim the access that we have to God with confidence in Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. And so you have to imagine every time the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to Jews and Gentiles together that the angels are saying, really, wow, that's, ma- that's amazing. Because they're learning something. You never thought that they could learn things. Evidently they can because the church is the means by which we educate the heavenly beings. That's what Paul is saying. And that drives him to prayer for this reason. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father. Yeah, we should bow our knees before the Father when we think about that, shouldn't we? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's position as he begins this prayer is he bows his knees before the Father. Even though we can approach God with freedom and with boldness and with confidence, Paul knows it. Paul knows who he is, and he knows who God is, and he knows he's not God. And he knows that God is great and that we are not. And so he bows before the Father, bows before, bows his knees before the Father. That's certainly not a statement that that's the way prayer must take place, but certainly it is a reminder of who we are before God. And that's what he does. That's the basis from which he operates in his prayer life from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so he prays to the one who's got the whole world in his hands. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Everybody comes from God in some sense. That's not to say everybody's redeemed, they aren't. But everybody comes from God, They they find their source in God and until they discover a relationship with God, their lives ultimately have a deep hole, an absence of God that is Uh, absolutely terrifying when you think about it. But God owns it all and everyone in it. And then he has the petitions that he mentions. The first is that they be strengthened with power. Now, you remember in the first prayer, he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the power. And the source of that power is uh, according to and out of his glorious riches. And the agent of that power is, is the spirit of God. And the location is in our inner being. But in this particular case, that's the kind of thing that Paul wants us to recognize, that we would know out of his glorious riches by the spirit of the living God, that we would be strengthened with power. But why? What's the purpose? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Now, we already know that Christ lives in us. Paul has communicated that on numerous occasions. Jesus promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? Well, it reminds me of the eighth chapter of Romans, for instance, beginning in verse 9, which says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, Christ is already in your hearts, but that means that the life of Christ would manifest itself a beginning in our hearts, in our inner being. It would, he would manifest himself and dwell there. In other words, make his home there, be comfortable there, not be simply a visitor from time to time, but actually be the one who resides there, that there would be no divided affections within the, within the house of our hearts. And the means of our appropriating that kind of a relationship with God through Christ is faith. May dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the prayer. And the foundation of that walk then is to be rooted and grounded in love. He also prays that they would have knowledge, that they would have strength to comprehend. And that would be a community kind of knowledge. He said to comprehend together with all the saints. Uh, that's why in our mission statement of the village church, we're building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ because a community implies that we're doing this kind of thing together, that we're growing together, that as we seek to have the Spirit of God bring the very person of Christ to dwell in our hearts and live in our hearts, that we do that in a way that we can encourage one another in that process. That's why being together and working together and uh, encouraging one another is so critically important. And then there's the ultimate purpose in this prayer that they would comprehend. Comprehend what? The breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, the breadth, that they would know that the love of Jesus Christ, this mystery that Paul refers to, really covers all of the nations. That's the breadth of the gospel. That they would know the length of the gospel. That the gospel was proclaimed all the way from the time of Abraham, and I would argue even before Abraham, even to Adam and Eve. The gospel was proclaimed. And so from all the way back then, well before 2000 BC, all the way till the present time, the gospel continues to go forth. The height of the gospel, that we would know the, the fact that in Jesus Christ we have been seated in the heavenly places. That's astonishing, isn't it? You think you're down here, but you're really up there, that we would know that height, that we would be able to see from that particular perspective all of life. And that's why Don can pray a few moments ago that we don't have to fear even though the world seems to be unraveling before us because we know that ultimately God is sovereign over all of these things and is accomplishing his purposes and glory in us and through the church as he proclaims the gospel even through tumultuous times that we can trust a God like that because we are seated in the heavenly places and we can have a God perspective on all of these events. And then the depth the depth when we recognize that we were dead in sins and trespasses until God made us alive together with him. 
And he's brought us back from the dead so that we might trust in Jesus and have eternal life in his name. And so the ultimate purpose is that they would comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's actually a play on words in the Greek. Uh, It actually says, know the love that surpasses knowledge. Know what surpasses knowledge. You get that? That's kind of strange, isn't it? The word for know is gnosko. Know the love that surpasses gnosis. So that's the play on words that we have here. In other words, we have the knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses all other kinds of knowledge. You may think you know something about everything. Uh, You may think you know something about physics or chemistry or mathematics or literature. You may think you know all of those things, but let me tell you something. The knowledge of the love of Christ surpasses all of that, surpasses all of that. Someone once said that a a philosopher, excuse me, a scientist was someone who studied less and less about more and more till they know everything about nothing. A philosopher, on the other hand, studies more and more about less and less until they know every, nothing about everything. But let me tell you something, when you know the love of Jesus Christ, you know everything you need to know. And that's what Paul is saying, that we would have that, that we would be filled with that kind of knowledge. And the ultimate purpose he describes, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. I can't even begin to unpack that. Filled with the fullness of God. That's what he prays for. That's one of those things that catches my attention and says, Hawkins, you really don't pray the way you should because you don't even understand that. Oh, I have a long to understand what that means. To be filled with the fullness of God. To have the person of Jesus Christ so fill me that I have the sense of godness about what, uh, what God wants for me and for us and for the people of God. That's characteristic of true godliness. That's what Paul prays for these people, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And as often happens in Paul's teaching and his writing, is he can't stand to do this and preach and pray this way without exclaiming, a doxology. And so this prayer concludes with a doxology. And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You go from prayer to doxology. Does that happen with you very often? You go through your prayer list and you're praying for one another and you're praying for your families and all that kind of thing. Do you erupt automatically at the conclusion of your prayer in doxology? That's, Paul prays in such a way that that's what, where he ends up. He ends up in doxology. He ends up in praise. As one person, uh, one Puritan once said, prayer turns holy into praise. That's where I long to be in my prayer life in which I find myself praying, but my prayer just simply turns into thanksgiving and praise, in which we give glory to God. We recognize in, our, in the glory of God our ability to do the unimaginable. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, 
according to his power at work within us. We recognize that as we are praying for one another. That's what leads him into doxology. And the glory of God is evident in a particular location, in the church, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. In other words, the church is the earthly manifestation of Jesus Christ. You are the body of Christ. You are the only Christ most people will ever see, by the way. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. You are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this doxology recognizes that the glory of God would be evident in the church, and that's the way we ought to pray for one another. And so we're building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope, what? In Jesus Christ, so that, in fact, Christ would be on display, that his glory would be evident to all with whom we come in contact. And then there is a duration. How long? Forever. Forever. That's the way Paul prays, this expansive prayer. And that's the way he does it. So would you pray with me? As we conclude, for this reason, we bow our knees before you, O Father. We recognize you, Father, because it is from you that every family in heaven and on earth is named. We know that every human being on the face of this globe, in some sense, even in a a sense that is corrupted by sin, nevertheless bears your image. And we pray with recognition, O God, that according to the riches of your glory, you may strengthen us with your power. We pray that that power might be evident through your spirit in our inner beings, that the very core of our personalities, our minds, our wills, and our emotions would have that kind of power that you intend, the spiritual power that comes only through Jesus Christ, so that this Jesus himself may dwell in our hearts through faith, that by believing Jesus may not only live and take up residence, but in fact be the primary occupant, the one whose fingerprints are all over everything that we think and imagine that Christ would accomplish all of that in us. And we pray, Father, that being rooted and grounded in the love of God, that you may give us a strength to comprehend with all the saints, with all our brothers and sisters, even who are here, that you would give us all a sense of the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the person of Jesus Christ, of the work of Jesus Christ, of all that he intends for us, we pray, Father, and that you know, would, would help us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that our knowledge of Jesus Christ and knowledge of his love would supersede everything, every pretension of human knowledge that we might imagine. And Father, we pray that in that process you would fill us with the very fullness of God. We pray that way, Father. We, We don't even know exactly what we're praying for, but we know that we need it. We know that that's the way you intended human beings to be, made after your image, conformed into the likeness of your Son. And we pray, Father, that you would fill us with the fullness of God himself, that you would make us partakers of the divine nature in ways that are beyond our even understanding and comprehension. And Father, in praying this way, we recognize that you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. That's good news for us, O God. 
because we need more than we can even imagine. And we know that you are able to accomplish it. And we know, Father, that you want to do that according to the power that is at work within us. You've already implanted the spirit of the living God in us. And you've promised, Father, in your word that you work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And that's what we desire to experience in fullness. And so, Father, to you be the glory. To you be glory in the church. To you be glory in Christ Jesus. And to you be glory throughout all generations forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.